Hello and welcome back to another episode of LC Cast. We're doing something a bit different this time. I've been here with Helen Meek and we're about to record the first episode of Learning Connections' first series, Can Do Attitude. We're going to be sitting down with Helen about once a month and talking about various Kanban topics. We'll take questions from you in the comments and also look at what's currently happening in the Kanban community and talk about that. But first, to kick us off, I'm going to pass you to Helen so she can tell us how she got started with Agile and how she pivoted from Agile into Kanban. Hi Vlad, hi everyone. So my name's Helen Meek. I've been in the Agile business since about 2008. Probably noticed already I've got a bit of a twang in my accent. And no, it is not the South Country. So I actually live in Norwich, and that's where my accent's from, the east of England. Um, Because I lived in Norwich my whole life, and one of the biggest employees in Norwich is Aviva, the chances are it's highly likely that I worked for them at some point in my life. So I did. I worked for them for 12 years in total, and that's where in 2008 I got the opportunity to cut my teeth on an agile transformation. And that first transformation was actually in Scrum. I was very lucky to work with a company called Conchango, and many of those people I do actually work with today. So back in 2008, we kicked off a Scrum transformation, lots of coaching, 10,000 strong um, organization that we needed to make work in a more agile way. Come 2012, I was looking for a new opportunity and I decided to leave Aviva. So I started working for a company called Ripple Rock and I actually joined ASOS, the online fashion retailer. And it was there where I got to meet lots of other great fantastic coaches. And one of those was Dan Brown. You probably know him as Kanban Dan. And that's where I first really started to understand what Kanban was and how it could help you within your organization. So I started to put some of those things into practice and really started to understand how it can help organizations. And then it was maybe about a year later that I decided that maybe becoming a Kanban trainer was for me. The training that I went on was actually provided by the Lean Kanban University. And this is headed up by Janice Linden-Reed and David Anderson, David Anderson being the founding father of Kanban within the software industry. So it was on that class that I really got to spend some great time with some great trainers who instilled the knowledge that they have um, and that helped me become the trainer that I am today. The Lean Kanban University is a fantastic place where you can get knowledge and information. So I really recommend you check at their website. Since then, I've spent my time going around lots of different companies and even countries putting that Kanban into practice. And so a great proportion of my time is actually spent teaching other people how to adopt these and how to get the full benefits within their organization. Now, some of you might be familiar with Helen from two communities she does in London. She's one of the co-hosts of the Agile Coaching Exchange, ACE, and also together with Kanban Dan, the Kanban Coaching Exchange. Helen is very involved with the Kanban community in London and she can tell us a bit more about what they're doing to promote Kanban to a greater audience. So Dan Brown and myself, we do run the Kanban Coaching Exchange. And the reason why we set this up is because it's important to us that there's free knowledge that anybody can get access to. And so once a month, we bring great speakers or great workshops to people hosted by fabulous venues that give us their offices for free. And so we then give people the opportunity to come and be creative or to seek knowledge or just to question the things that they've been hearing on a day-to-day basis. This is really important for Dan and I. 
just to reinforce that these are free events and that's really important because we want to make sure the knowledge that the community is getting is the right knowledge and it's accessible at any time. Now obviously if you are in London, if you work in London, we strongly encourage you to come to these events. We'll include the link in the description. But if you're not, we came up with this idea of doing these podcasts that are available to a wider audience. So maybe even if you are in London, most of us can't really come to every single event. We'll try to cover most basic Kanban topics, and if there's any interesting thing that comes out of the meetups, we'll have a short chat with Helen about it, and maybe some other guests from the Kanban Coaching Exchange, if we can get them. But for now, because we've been saying Kanban a lot, let's ask Helen what Kanban actually is. So this is a great place to start. Kanban at the core is something that you apply to your existing delivery method. And that's very different to the way that we work with Scrum. Because Scrum comes in and says you need to do these, you need to have these certain meetings. Kanban is not about that at all. Kanban is about understanding how you work today, what improvements do we need to make, and then apply the Kanban principles and practices on top of that and see what change that drives. Another primary focus of Kanban is understanding the demands and the capacity for your organization. And what I mean by that is thinking about all of the projects, all of the features, all of the stuff that you guys do on a daily basis, understanding when that work comes in, what type of work comes in, and how many people do you need to be able to deliver that. So that's the demand on your organization. Kanban is also about understanding the capacity of your organization. So how many people do you have? What teams have you got? What skills have they got to be able to deliver that work? And it's about matching the two. Quite often in organizations, we see companies that put lots and lots of projects into the same teams. And so you have huge amounts of multitasking. And we know multitasking is very wasteful. So in Kanban, we want to understand what the demand and the frequency of that demand is, and then how we can map the capacity and the capability within the teams to be able to deal with that. Kanban focuses on what you do now, and that's the first principle, and then it applies a number of other principles on top of that, plus the practices to be able to help you to drive your work. So let's take a look at what the principles and the practices are. There's actually three sets of principles. There's the service delivery principles, the change management principles, and the scaling principles. So I think the scaling ones is a conversation for another day, and so I'm not going to cover that today. The first set, the service delivery principles, these are probably quite new because they've only come around in about the last nine months, and so maybe not everybody has heard of them before. The first one is about understanding and focus on your customer needs and expectations. It's about managing the work and letting people organize around it. And it's about looking at your organization as an ecosystem of teams and how they relate to each other and how they work together using policies, regular feedback cycles, and then taking that feedback and then improving on them further. And this one really instills the fact that Kanban is not just a team thing. It's about looking at it from the whole organizational point of view and how all of those teams interact with each other to provide the services that we have in our organizations today. 
The change management principles, and these are the ones that you're probably more familiar with, start with what you do now. So because we apply Kanban on top of your existing methods, we're not going to dictate to you that you have to have these types of roles or these types of behaviors or these types of meetings. What we're saying is we want to understand your current processes as you actually practice them, and then we want to take a look at some of the roles and responsibilities later on, but they will change within your control and with your help. The second one under change management principles, gain agreement to pursue improvement through evolutionary change. So all the way through this, we're going to be finding things that aren't quite right or causing us problems. And so what we want to do as a group of people or individuals, we want to actually get together and say, what can we do to fix these? But everybody needs to take responsibility for that. So it's a whole team approach, whole organization approach, rather than just the manager leading it all the time. The final one is encouraging acts of leadership at all levels. And this is closely linked to the last one, because we all have to have the ability to call out when there's a problem. So I'm idle, I'm stuck, I'm busy. These are the things that are going to help us to decide what are the things that we need to change, make those changes for the best of the team. Now, obviously, understanding the principles is a good place to begin, so we know where we're trying to get. But when we start a new Kanban implementation, we need some concrete practices to help us get going. So what would some concrete Kanban practices be? So the first Kanban practice is visualization. And we use visualization to help us to understand where the work is, who's working on it, and where all of the different challenges are. Visualization is a key practice that we use not just in Kanban teams, but we also use it in Scrum teams as well. Kanban visualizations are quite different to the ones that you might see. And this is because we have different state columns and we also have buffers to help us to understand where that work physically is. The second practice is about limiting your work in progress. So this is about really understanding what the capacity of your team and your organization is. Now, if you remember, Kanban is about matching demand and capacity. And so what we want to do is to be able to balance the two. So your work in progress limit numbers are going to help us to understand how much we can have in flight at whatever part of the process at any given time. Now to call yourself a Kanban system, as a minimum you need to have some level of visualization, but you also need to have work in progress limits in place, understanding that demand and that capacity. So if I was going to be really mean, all of those people out there that are just using post-it notes on the wall, you are not technically a Kanban system. However, if you have work in progress limits and a visualization, you are a Kanban system, but you are what we call a proto-Kanban. And that's a, quite a shallow implementation and not really getting the full benefits from all of the different practices that are also there. The third practice is about managing flow. So we don't have the concept of time boxes in Kanban, and so we need to understand how things are moving across the board, where the problems are, how much time we spend waiting on things versus how much time we spend working on things. So we need to have some great metrics that is going to help us to be able to make some decisions based upon facts. This is where we introduce lots of things such as the cumulative flow diagram, the lead time distribution, the control chart and the flow efficiency to help us to be able to monitor this and to control the changes that we put in and also to visualize the outputs of the changes. The fourth one, make policies explicit. In Scrum, you kind of have the definition of done. 
So think of this as something a little bit similar. But we want to make sure that these are called out all over the board because these are kind of like the signposts. These are the guidances as how we're going to use these systems and how we're going to work together as a team. These might be on column boundaries. They might be on um, columns themselves. You might even have them on your swim lanes or rows. They could be on how your queue is prioritized, the type of work you take in. It might even be as simple as how we're going to work together as a team, a team ethos or working agreements. So this is really about making what we're doing completely transparent so that anybody can get involved within the team or the organization and understand what it is they need to do to actually get work completed. The next one is implementing feedback loops. Feedback is extremely important because these are the things that we need to change. And so what we're looking for using the, the metrics that we get in Manage Flow, we're looking for things that are causing us problems, that's delaying us or holding us back and really affecting what we're doing. These are the things that we need to target. Now, typically, you might have retrospective meetings initially because maybe if you've come from Scrum, that's what you do now. And you start with what you do now in Kanban. So you might continue to do those retrospectives, but we really want to encourage as much ad hoc retrospection as possible. So maybe when you deliver a story, you spend some time talking around that, then you deliver the next one, you spend some time on that. Maybe there's a problem on a daily basis, huddle everybody around a board and have that conversation. That's where you want to head, but you might initially have those two-week retrospectives to kick you off. Now the final one is linked very closely to implement feedback loops. And this is about improving collaboratively, involving experimentally, using models and scientific method. So what does that really mean? That means we want you to identify what the problem is, set the hypothesis of what the changes you want to achieve, outline some goals and the things that get you there, set the time frame of when you're going to measure them, and then make sure you come back and measure them. And there's lots of different models that you can use out there, and Kanban doesn't dictate you. Go out and investigate and experiment for yourself to see which one's the most preferred. So really, this is about taking a deeper look into the changes that we need to make and isolating them and being a little bit more scientific about the change that we're doing. Right, now let's roll it back a bit to the Kanban kiddie pool and focus on the two ones that you said were essential for calling ourselves a Kanban team. So if I remember them correctly, it is visualized, which I'm guessing is not going to be a very big challenge for a lot of our teams that are already familiar with Agile because most of them have sort of information radiator somewhere. It's either a physical board or a tool they use. And the second one being implementing uh, working progress limits, whip limits. Now we're going to tackle each of them individually and then talk about how they interact. Let's start with visualizations. Since you said that we are supposed to start with what we have now, coming from what I'm assuming most people are familiar with, the, the Scrum board with to do, doing, and done. Can we start with this? What do we need to do to it to make it a bit more Kanban-y if we, if we are really serious about moving to a Kanban process? So one of the things that we talk about in Kanban is a practice called the systems thinking approach to implementing Kanban, or we call it static for short. Okay, so that's the systems thinking approach for implementing Kanban. And what that is, is a number of steps that you take your teams and your organizations through to help you to understand some of those key pieces of information that we need to gather. So first of all, we need to understand what makes our service fit for purpose. And remember, when I say service, this is about 
the service you provide to your customers, so delivering a piece of functionality. Okay, So we have to find out what makes it fit for purpose for them. The second one is we have to understand what the sources and dissatisfaction are within your teams and your organizations. So what would your customers say about you? What would your internal teams say about the way that they're working? And this gives us a great insight and it helps us to understand what we might need to model on our visualizations. So the third one is analyze your sources and nature of demand. This is about understanding where does your work come from? Finance, marketing, retail, all of these different places. So it's about understanding who our customers are. And then is there patterns in the way that that work comes through to you? Can you expect more around the end of financial year from finance? What patterns have you got? And this is going to help us to understand how we need to flex our capability within the visualizations and through the use of our WIP limits. The fourth one is about analyzing the current delivery capability. So how many people do you have within your teams to be able to do this work? So let's take a look at your business analysis, your database analysis, your developers, your testers, anyone who needs to do the work. And we use this to help us to set our work in progress limit numbers. Step five, this is where you're actually going to start mapping out what your service delivery workflow looks like. So a piece of work comes into your team. What do you then do with it? Do you triage it? Do you pick it up? Do you get some sort of refinement going on it? Do you have to send it for funding? What we're looking for here is every single step that types of work have to go through. And this is kind of twofold. The first fold is because we want to make sure that the team completely understands the way that work comes in and the way work leaves the system, because quite often that common understanding isn't there. The second one is because we need to make sure we map out all of these different parts of the system when we build our visualization. Step six is about identifying and defining the class of service. So there's four different types of class of service, and that is standard, intangible, fixed date, and expedite. Okay. So you can also have your own different types of class of service if you find you have different types of work that's prevalent within your organization. So today, Vlad, I think class of service is out of scope, and I know a great guy who could come in and speak to us all about class of service another time. Step seven, design the Kanban system. So using all of this information that you've collected, we want to build that visualization. So we need to make sure we build in those sources of dissatisfaction, we build in those delivery capabilities, we want to be able to build and understand where all of the different work is coming from, and we want to make sure that we've got a different class of service to help us. So you can already see that your board is going to be very, very different to your not started, in progress, and done. And when we model your workflow, that's how we then decide what columns would actually fit within your boards. And then to help us to become a pool system, then we would create buffers to indicate where there's bottlenecks or starvation points within our system. In a way, if I understand what you're saying correctly, is our current board gives us some information about what state our current work is in, but it doesn't really tell us a lot about our organization. So we know that certain tasks are going to be worked on, certain tasks are currently being worked on, and certain tasks are finished. But this tells us absolutely nothing about the services we deliver, about how our organization is structured, what teams we have. It's a good start, but it's not really high-resolution information radiator. It's a very basic tool. Now, if we're starting with Kanban, we need to spend a bit of time at the beginning to really map out our business and our teams and find out what we are currently doing 
and maybe look at how to improve our current process. One very specific Canva way of improving it is implementing whip limits based on what our current capacity is. Because I think we all know that recruiting new people is something that's very difficult. So if we look at our current board and we see that we currently have a bit of a bottleneck somewhere, the solution isn't just to throw more people at the problem. It's to implement a process that allows us to work within our current possibilities in a better way. I know if you'd agree with that or not. Absolutely. Just increasing the capacity of the teams is really difficult. And quite often when we do that, we have to take certain people out of the team to go and review CVs and actually complete the interviews. So we need to get smarter about understanding what capacity we have got within the teams and then using that to create whip limits on our visualizations to work out how much work we can pull through on a regular basis. So typically, whip limits are set maybe per person, per swim lane, or per row, depending on what it is that you want to limit. And typically, this might be, for me, for example, I might have two pieces of work in flight at any given time. So that means I'm working on one thing, and inherently, I'm always waiting for a piece of information or someone else to do something. And so my whip limit, ideally, would be two pieces of work. And that's about keeping me really focused on what I'm doing and minimizing context switching. But if you look at some other organizations that I've been in, maybe support teams, they have a really high level of waiting time. And so you might find that some of the whip limits are much, much higher there. The one team I had was about seven. But for me, that's really bad because you can't juggle that amount of stuff. And so that means that we now need to spring into action as a team, identify why it's so high, and put those processes of improvements in place to reduce it down to a regular level. Whip limits really help our organizations focusing on finishing things rather than starting things. Okay, so the sooner you finish work, the sooner you finish. Whip limits are the, probably the biggest improvement that you can make to your ways of working, which is going to control the work and how things move through your system. So absolutely, it's the second most important thing that you can do back in your office tomorrow. The first being, let's visualize the work and then let's see how that work flows and then limit based upon the number of people that we've got using the whip limits. I feel like I should mention when looking at whip limits, it's... Something that might be a bit of a challenge for organizations, especially figuring out what a good whip limit is. But whenever setting whip limits, I think we should always take into account the fact that there needs to be a bit of slack. So aiming for 100% use of any person's time, I feel like is a very dangerous thing. So when you're looking at how much work a person is doing and how much time he's waiting for other tasks, most people tend to, to underestimate how much a task will take them or overestimate how much they can do. So I feel like in the beginning, for a lot of people, the whip limits they're going to set for themselves are going to be higher than what they, what they can actually achieve. And that's absolutely correct. That's what I kind of see as a coach. And that's absolutely fine because that's what they're doing now when it comes back to that first principle. But the reason why we create slightly different visualizations and have those buffers is because having high numbers of whip in your team is actually going to cause you a massive problem. And so we'll see that manifesting itself on the board, either in some sort of waiting column, or maybe it will be in a buffer because there's not enough capability to be able to pull that through. And so the biggest way that you're actually going to change your whip limits is by looking at what's going on and then realizing for yourself and lowering them gradually over time. 
And that's exactly what you have to do. See what's happening and lower them to make sure that you really optimize the delivery rate of the team. Through lower permits, we would ideally achieve greater flow. So work would move through the board faster. But would you say this when companies implement permits for the first time, it doesn't really take a lot for them to actually start ignoring the whip limits. So for people to pull, start pulling in work over the limit or for people to start ignoring the whip limit. And for example, developers working on more development tasks, even though the column is completely full. So we've reached the limit and not picking up any other kind of work because that's what they're used to doing. How would we tackle this? Because we can have the situation where we talk about whip limits and the organizations all on board and we go to the process, we recreate our board we put the whip limits there, but the first time there's any pressure, one instinct might be just to ignore the whip limits. And That's a really good question. And again, it's something that will happen within your organization when you start using these. And that's because organizations don't understand the impact of giving the same number of people more work. So the way I would try and control this is I just have a simple rule. If you think you need to break your work in progress limit for any reason, then let's talk about it at the daily Kanban or come and see me at any point of the day. Because there's always going to be reasons why we need to break the work in progress limit, but we need to understand and know the reasons and accept that's an acceptable thing to do. Sometimes it will be, sometimes it won't be, but with that knowledge, we can then make a decision on whether we need to improve a process or whether this is just truly a one-off thing that's going to cause no or little impact. Now don't forget, when we talked about the managed flow practice, we talked about having a cumulative flow diagram. I've also got a lead time distribution chart and I've got a control chart. So if we're continuously breaking our work in progress limits, I'm gonna quite visibly see on these reports what the impact of that is. And it might be that our lead time gets longer because waiting time is happening within the system. Now, as a good Scrum Master, Project Manager, Service Request Manager, whatever I call myself in this role, I'm going to be keeping an eye on how long it's taking the team to get through certain types of work. And that's called my lead time. So if there's massive changes to this, that's a signal as well that I need to be having retrospection about what those problems are. So repeating that concisely, what I understood was that generally we do have whip limits, but we can change them. Now, how do we know when the right time to change a whip limit is? If somebody comes and says that I think we should increase the whip limit for this, what would you ask them to So it's about the conversation, and I would encourage everybody who's involved with that, that system to have the conversation about it. Because if there's a really valid reason, then I might increase the whip for a short-term period. However, if it's something to try and cover up a problem elsewhere, then I need to find the root cause of that problem and solve it. However, it's not uncommon for teams to change their whip up and down. And it's about the understanding of why that is physically happening. So a good time to actually raise about changing whip limits is absolutely any time. We want to encourage that continuous feedback loop to be able to make sure the team is doing the right thing. If they raise that, for example, at the daily Kanban, then what I would do is I would get the whole team just to step back and reflect about what they're seeing on the visualization and make some calls and judgments about what it is we're trying to achieve and what we're actually seeing in reality. 
From that point, we can then make a decision as a team or group of people what it is we want to do and then make that change. We also talked about setting a hypothesis and then measuring the results. So this is a prime example where we would do this. We'd step back, look at the board, decide what it is we need to do. We'd set a hypothesis, we'd set a time frame, and then we'd measure it to see the impact of that. And again, we would use all of our charts and information to help us to show if this has been successful or not. Now, obviously, at the beginning, when we're starting with Kanban, we're going to be experimenting a lot more. So we're going to probably be changing our whip limit quite frequently. But like you said, we're going to experiment and try to increase it and decrease it and see how we're going. Do we usually see a period when it stabilizes? So after a while, does it become fixed unless we're adding new members to our team? Absolutely. So it's going to be quite turbulent when you start out. And over the first six months of any Kanban implementation, you're going to be changing your board, you're going to be testing different whip limits, and you're going to be experimenting with different improvements you want to make. But at some point, you will stabilize as a team. And then what you'll find is that you'll have quite a balanced board. So a balanced board is consistent whip limits as it flows through. And no buffers are being used consistently because work is just flowing. But that will take some time to achieve, but it will happen. But as you rightly said, Vlad, as you add more people, or if you fundamentally do something different to the, the capability within the team, or maybe even a different type of work comes in, you might have to revisit those. Just to pick up on a point that you said, you wouldn't change your whip limits that frequently because you would have to wait some time to see the results on the board or on the charts themselves. So this is very much dependent on what your lead time is for your pieces of work flowing through your system. So you wouldn't do it maybe on a daily basis. It could be a month, two months before you actually see some sort of impact to be able to take a new decision from that point. Okay, I think we'll be stopping here for today. As I mentioned in the beginning, this is going to be a series for LCCast. So expect new episodes every month or so. If there's something you'd like to know more about or something you'd like us to cover on the show, drop me an email at kanban.learningconnections.com. Also, if you'd like to see Helen in action and begin your journey towards becoming a certified Kanban management professional, Learning Connections hosts a two-day course with Helen in London. For more details about the location, dates, and price, as well as a full agenda, go to learningconnections.com forward slash Kanban, email me directly, or talk to us at one of our meetups in London. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me.